0: People are yearning for information, having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to
1: be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for
0: everyone. Jim Dethmer is a coach, speaker, author, and founding partner at the Conscious Leadership Group. He's worked with hundreds of CEOs to bring conscious leadership to their companies. He's a best-selling author and he's also our friend. Trisha has gone through conscious leadership training, and I've heard a lot about conscious leadership through Trisha and the many others in our community who have spoken so highly of the program. So welcome, Jim, to HealthGig.
2: Thank you. (laughs) So good to be here.
0: So, talk to us about what is conscious leadership and give us a broad overview.
2: Let's start with leadership and a broad definition of leadership. So, the definition we use is leaders take radical responsibility for the influence they're having in the world. They're people of influence. And what makes them unique is they're taking responsibility for the influence they're having. So, I say that to say if you're a parent, you're a leader. If you're leading in a spiritual community, if you're leading in your school, it doesn't have to be in an organization, corporation, nonprofit, anything like that. So I imagine that everybody who's listening to this is leading someplace. And then the question is, are they willing to take responsibility for the influence they're having? That's a choice, and all leaders don't take responsibility. (laughs) Some leaders tend to want to blame and criticize, but conscious leaders take responsibility. And then conscious, there's so many definitions for that. Let's just say that it's being here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive way, just being present. So leadership, especially in these times, can be a very challenging calling. And it's so easy to lead from reactivity. Conscious leaders are aware of that, and they do that at times, but then they know how to come back into presence, whether it's with their five-year-old or with their aging parents or with the hospital that they're a frontline worker in. They know how to come back into presence and lead in a non-reactive way. So there you go. Non-reactive, responsible for the influence I'm having in the world.
0: Describe an unconscious leader to us.
2: That's a beautiful question. An unconscious leader is somebody who first and foremost isn't very (laughs) self-aware. At the most basic level, they don't see their strengths and their weaknesses. They don't see their personality and how their personality patterns are taking hold of them and driving them. They don't see their shadow. They don't see the hidden impulses. So they're not very self-aware and they're not aware at all of the effect they're having on other people. So they could be a bull in a china shop or they could be passive aggressive or they could by the very way that they show up, they actually incite drama. So not very self-aware. Second, they aren't committed to learning. They're attached to being right. They're in the grip of their ego to such an extent that every place they go, they're still needing to prove that they're right. Conscious leaders are much more interested in learning, in growing, in expanding than they are in proving they're right. So unconscious leaders are not very self-aware. Unconscious leaders are not interested in learning. They're still defending their ego. Here's a big one. Unconscious leaders have low EQ. They don't have much emotional intelligence. So what that means is they're not very skilled at being with their own feeling states or their own emotions. They're either controlled by their emotions, so their emotions take them over and then they explode on people in rage or they collapse in sadness or they get paralyzed by fear Conscious leaders, conscious people, know how to be with their emotional states in a way that is friendly to them. So emotions are a real gift if we know how to be with them and friendly to other people. Unconscious leaders don't know how to be with their own emotions and they don't know how to be with other people's emotions. And we're talking in the midst of COVID-19. We're talking in the midst of a world that is collectively and individually feeling all kinds of emotions we haven't felt before. There's a level of terror. There's a level of panic. There's a level of sadness and grief. There's a level of anger and frustration that in the collective we might not have ever experienced before. What the world needs now, amongst many other things, are leaders who know how to be with those collective and individual emotions in a way that is healing and not destructive. Let's say we're all leaders. I know you two are, my goodness, and and I take responsibility for the influence I'm having. We're in the world with people who are scared. That's just a given, right? People who are scared. Now, people manifest their fear all different ways. I like that there's fight, flight, freeze, and faint. Those are four ways to be scared. Some of the people in our worlds are fighters. They get forceful with their fear. Others are fleers. They run away, run away. Whether they're running away into alcohol or running away into even exercise, you can run into exercise, all kinds of healthy things you can do to run away from feeling your fear. Or they freeze, they become like deer in headlights, or they literally kind of faint, pass out. What do conscious leaders do? The first thing they do, in my judgment, is they say to people, Of course you're scared. They validate the natural human response of being scared. Unconscious leaders tell people, There's nothing to be scared of. We got this, we got it under control. Conscious leaders say, Of course you're scared. You know, I've got kids, six kids, seven grandkids. There are times during this entire thing when they've all been scared. And as a conscious parent, I don't say, nothing to be scared of. You're going to do fine. That actually makes people more afraid. Instead, we as a family just say, it's okay to be scared. Let's feel our fear. But conscious leaders don't stop there. They not only say it's okay for you to be scared, they're vulnerable. They say, you know, the truth is I'm scared too. Like, just an aside, I've been doing meditations on death recently, because I think one of the things this virus is inviting us to face is our relationship to death. I think it's really important. And so this morning, I was doing a particular meditation on death that a Buddhist monk was leading. I felt scared. I was meditating on the certainty of death. By the way, you know, nothing has changed. We're all going to die. Right? Right. It's just now we know one more germ that could kill us. There are an infinite number of germs that could kill us, let alone a car accident, let alone a stroke or a heart attack, let alone cancer. All that's happened is in the limitless number of things that could be the cause of our certain death, now we have this virus. Nothing has changed, but all of a sudden everybody's going like, holy mud, I could die. <laughs> So this morning I was facing the certainty of my death and the uncertainty of the timing of it. That's why death is such a confounding thing. It's certain it will happen, but it's uncertain when. I felt fear come up. So I say to the countless people that I'm in relationship, of course you're scared. But we don't get paralyzed by fear. We learn how to feel our fear and let it pass through our bodies and then like fear like all the emotions it's here to give us wisdom so we get the wisdom of fear wisdom is here to tell us to pay attention attention that needs to be paid in this day and age to washing our hands to maintaining distance but not from being paralyzed by fear but being wise with fear so i'm digressing off of your initial question what do unconscious leaders do here's what they are not self-aware they don't value learning, they're egoically fixed on proving they're right, and they're not very emotionally intelligent. Just start there.
1: <laughs> and so how do you become a conscious leader?
2: Oh, such a fun question. Well, it begins with self-awareness. It begins with the simple question, you know this, Trisha. the simple question we start with, and it's such a simple question, is we just ask people to simply ask, where are you? Like in any given moment, a couple times a day, just ask, Where are you? The model we use, which you both know, is, and we've created a model that we think is so simple, are you above the line or below the line? So the first key is, in this moment, are you self aware enough to locate yourself? If I ask myself the question, Where am I? the answer is going to be, I'm either below the line, which simply means I'm in a threatened state. I believe that my survival approval, or desire for control are being threatened. So I'm in a fear-based reactivity. If you ask me, where am I? Oftentimes, I'll say I'm below the line. In fact, it happened just before our call. We're recording on Zoom. I was clicking on Zoom. It wasn't going through. I quit Zoom. I started Zoom again. It was 350 when I started, then 358, then 359. And all of a sudden, I got threatened my desire to keep an agreement with you, my desire to have the technology support is just a little tiny thing. I went below the line. When we're above the line, we're in a state of trust. We're present and we're trusting. Now, this is a big conversation. We're trusting that life, the universe, whatever you want to call it, is happening for us. Now, we could talk about what that means, but in essence, what it means is the universe is interested in me waking up, in me evolving into the highest state of myself that I can be in. The simple truth of the matter is most of us are in a reactive threatened state most of the time. That's not a bad thing. It's just the function of the reptilian brain. I'm scanning the world looking for threat. Well, Mm -hmm. God knows if you're a sentient being in this day and age, there's all kinds of threat. So the first key to becoming conscious is take a breath, interrupt the automaticity of your mind, just interrupt the pattern and ask, where am I? And for most of us, the answer is going to be below the line. It's okay. The goal is not to be above the line. The goal is not to be in some state of enlightened perfection. I mean, if you want to make that your goal, fine, but good luck. The goal is just to be a human who's a little bit self-aware. So we start when you ask, how do you become a conscious leader, a conscious parent, a conscious partner in an intimate relationship? Start by breathing and asking, where am I? I would just ask anybody listening right now to say, where am I? And there's a real good chance you're below the line. Which leads to the second question. The second question of a conscious person is, can I accept myself for being just where I am? When we're below the line, we're in this fear-based, threatened state. So we're naturally and normally scared. The second question is, can I meet my fear with acceptance. The antidote to fear is acceptance. It's not courage. It's really not. Before courage can come, acceptance needs to meet fear. So it's loving kindness. It's, can I give myself one breath of acceptance for being scared? Humans live life scared. Now, a lot of people don't identify with that. They live life angry or sad, but underneath those emotions, usually there's fear. It's a little bit like, you know, I have these grandkids and they're so sweet. They go from zero up to eight. And the little ones, especially when they're scared, you know, they'll come to me and to Debbie, their grandmother, and they're scared. And when my little grandchildren come to me below the line and scared, I don't say to them, hey, there's nothing to be scared about. Get over being scared. What I say is, oh, sweetie, you're scared. Of course you're scared. Even if you think there's a boogeyman under the bed, I don't say to them, now listen, there's no such thing as boogeyman, so your fear is totally irrational, and you need to (laughs) Google (laughs) boogeyman, boogeywomen, and see that there is no such thing, and then you will have a rational approach to your fear, and you will get over your fear. That would be crummy grandparenting. Instead, I say, of course you're scared. Here's what I'm really saying. If I saw the world the way you see the world, that there are boogeymen, I'd be scared too. So when I'm doing my best grandparenting, I meet their fear with acceptance. And then Dan Siegel and his great work on, you know, the whole brain child and all that stuff. What's going to happen is when the child is met in their fear with acceptance, they start to calm down, especially if I'm breathing and I'm present. Then as they come into a calmer state, then I can say to them what I often say, it's okay to be scared. Grandfather gets scared too. I was scared just today. I was talking to my friends Dora and Trisha, and my computer wouldn't work and I got scared I would look stupid. Grandfather gets scared too. And then when we're both coming into loving kindness or acceptance, then I can say, let's take a flashlight and go see if we can find the boogeyman then they're open to learning and shifting, but not until fear has been met with love. Does that make sense? So again, your question is, how do you become conscious? Become self-aware, which is no simple thing, and become more self-accepting. I say to people, if you took all the work we do in the world, it just boils down to two things, awareness and acceptance. How self-aware can you become and how accepting can you become? Now, there's a whole lot more to consciousness. But if you take the Buddhists, that's basically all they're saying. If you take mystical Christianity or the Kabbalah or certain forms of Hinduism, all the great traditions, all they're saying is, can you see with a clearer eye, that's acceptance, and can you open your heart? Because most of us close our eyes and close our heart. So consciousness is seeing, open-eyed, and feeling open-hearted. That makes it really sense? It does,
1: Jim. It really does. Can you talk a little bit about the roles that we play if we're committed to being a victim or a hero? And how does that play now?
2: We give credit here to Cartman and the Cartman Triangle, which has been around in psychology for years. And the idea is basically when you're below the line and you're in a threatened state, you're going to find that inside of yourself and in your relationships with other people who are below the line with you, you're going to be rotating around three different roles. The first role is the role of the victim. And this is actually victim consciousness. This is the belief that the world is happening to me. So I am a victim at the effect of people, circumstances, or conditions. I always pause here, Tricia, you know this, and I say, there are real victims in the world. Right. Including innocent children who are at the effect of people with power or people in refugee camps. There are real victims in the world. I was raised in a family, like most of our families, that had enough neuroses to keep everybody going for a while. You know, my mom was an alcoholic and my dad sexually abused my sister and my brother had all kinds of neurotic compulsions. You could have said when I was 2, four, six, eight, 12, I was a victim at the effect of the environment. But now I'm 66 years old. If we got together and I was saying, my life sucks because I had a crummy family. Well, that's victimhood because I haven't taken responsibility for the choices I've made in how I'm going to be with my family of origin. Very different thing. Okay. So the first base is victim at the effect of. The second base is villain. Villains blame. They know that something is wrong. Something is screwed up and their job is to figure out who to blame. A lot of villains, by the way, blame themselves. I screwed up. Or I can blame you. You screwed up. Or I can blame the collective who screwed it up for all of us. And then the last role is hero, which sounds like a good thing. I think it's also called rescuer and reliever. And the idea is, as the hero, I'm just trying to give temporary relief. I'm not trying to really resolve the issue. I just want you to feel better for a moment. Temporary relief for you and for me. So does that show up today in what's going on? Absolutely. So many of us feel like victims. We're at the effect of COVID-19 we're at the effect of sheltering in place we're at the effect of having to homeschool our kids i never signed up to be a teacher parents are saying we're at the effect of being quarantined with a mate i don't (laughs) like in the first place so now i'm at the effect of the rules and i'm at the effect of the reality that he's a jerk so i'm a victim but we also all go over to the villain space All you have to do is listen to any news channel. By the way, it doesn't matter what news channel. You can listen to the right or the left. It doesn't matter. You see all these roles played out. And one of the roles of most of our modern media is figuring out who to blame. And we all do it. If only the government would have gotten ahead of this, then we wouldn't have this problem honest to goodness, people walk down the street. It's wild to watch. And if you're not maintaining exactly (laughs) six feet with your mask on, and God forbid you have an N95 mask on, because then you're immediately judged as a complete jerk for having an N95 mask when healthcare workers don't have them. But you can see it in people's eyes. You're too close. You're too close. Move away. Move away. They're blaming each other. By the way, the reason we go to villain is it gives us a sense of control. We feel so darn out of control right now, don't we? And one of the ways to feel like we're in control, like we get our power back is if we can figure out who to blame. And then the hero is, I'm going to do something to give myself temporary relief from my suffering. So for example, you live all day homeschooling your kid, which you never signed up for, in a house with a partner you don't really love, and by 8 o'clock at night, you're going to give yourself temporary relief by vegging out in front of a screen and surfing the web and buying stuff you don't need, but at least you feel better for a minute. Or you're going to drink a beer, or you're going to do something to give yourself relief rather than face, feel, and deal with the deeper issues. And this is a great time for heroes to come forward who are trying to rescue other people. Now, that's very different than playing the role of a healer or a caregiver. Although one of the things I'm speaking to and gathering together are frontline health givers, because those frontline workers, if they're doing all this from below the line and from hero, they are exhausting themselves. They are burning themselves out. They have no self-care. They have no boundaries. If healthcare givers give care from above the line, they know how to give their loving presence. They know how to do their job, but they also know the incredible value of saying, That's enough. I'm going to go take a nap. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to eat some healthy food. I'm going to go home and get a good night's sleep. And they don't guilt themselves for that. Instead, they do it from presence. Heroes don't have good boundaries and it leads to massive burnout. So there you go. That's a little bit about the victim, villain, hero dance that's going on all the time when we're below the line. Wow.
1: That's a lot of information, but boy, every single word is like, yes, yes, that's right. What else, Jim, do you think we should share with folks as people begin on this journey of making decisions for themselves, understanding that they can have a more conscious life?
2: Let me start with some real basics. The first thing I say to people, if they want to just begin the journey towards waking up or being conscious or whatever you want to call it, the first thing I say is develop a breathing
1: practice. Okay. We're all taking a deep (laughs) breath. Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Because when I'm triggered and reactive, I go into a fear-based breathing pattern. So my breath is shorter. I breathe in my chest and it's faster. So one of the things I say to people all the time is breathe consciously. So we could do it right now. Everybody have the intention of breathing deep, like into your belly. In fact, if you can do this, put your hand on your belly about at your belt. And what you're going to do is you're going to breathe deep into your belly and see if you can just get your hand to move, not by flexing your muscles, but just by breathing. And then we're gonna breathe in a different cadence, a little slower. Like think about a four-second inhale and a four-second exhale deep into the belly. And then we're just gonna follow the breath. So following the breath in, down into the belly, nice and slow. And then we're gonna follow the breath all the way out. And follow the breath back
1: in. And follow the breath out.
2: This is what we call a shift move. So when the amygdala is triggered and I'm in that fight-flight-freeze-faint reactivity, a chemical cocktail courses through my blood and brain. Cortisol, norepinephrine, adrenaline, those are the chemicals designed to help me to survive, but they're not very good for being present. So if people did nothing more than just start with a breathing practice, when I start people very simply, I just say, do four, four by four breaths, four breaths with a four second inhale and a four second exhale down into your belly and do that three times a day. Now, you can't get any simpler than that. Breathe.
1: And the idea, too, is it's always available. We don't have to go buy a piece of equipment for it. We don't need to be anywhere special, right? You could be standing, sitting in your house, wherever, and you can find your breath.
2: Yes, and it's not complicated. But the deal is most of us are terrified to get that still. Right. Blaise Pascal said that almost all the problems that humanity has come from people's inability to sit quietly in a room by themselves. By the way, one of the things the virus is forcing many of us to do, sit quietly in a room by ourselves. And that's incredibly triggering. So the first tip I give people is breathe. And then the second tip I give people is if they don't have a simple mindfulness practice, start with which I know you guys talk about all the time. And now we live in a day and age when you just go download Headspace or download Calm or download Insight Timer. or on our website, we've got like 15 different meditations. They're available. And I tell people start really small, just a couple of minutes. There are many reasons to do this, all of which you know and you teach people. But one of them is so that I can have a few moments a day when I come back into presence. So breathe and start a mindfulness practice. And then if you ask me a third one, I'd say a couple times a day, just ask yourself, where am I? And can I accept myself for being just where I am? That's a beginning journey. And then there's a lot more to do. But for beginners, those are the places to start.
0: So Jim, you go into companies and bring the Conscious Leadership Program. You do it for individuals as well. What does a company look like after you've been in there and done the program?
2: That's such a good question. Yeah, and we've been in there, done the program, and they're practicing. Mm-hmm. So first of all, we tell companies at the beginning that it takes somewhere between two and three years to develop some mastery. So we're not a flavor of the month. The other thing we do, this is really A strange way to approach it when you're in the consulting business like we are with companies, when a company calls us, we say, we won't come in and work with you unless your CEO works with us in individual coaching for three to six months. Hmm. Because we don't want to go into a company unless the leader is practicing. As it creates a massive jangle, if this appears as a program, and people look at their leader and they say, she's not practicing this. Mm -hmm. But then we roll it down. We start with the leader and her direct reports, and then we start moving out. But to answer your question, here's what it looks like. Drama decreases. We have what we call the drama tax. Most companies, teams, organizations, universities have tons of drama, and drama is incredibly costly. It costs in terms of physical wellness. It costs in terms of high turnover rates. It costs in terms of poor decision-making. So when a team begins to practice this, drama decreases. Now, what that looks like is there's less blame and criticism and fault-finding. There's more taking of responsibility. There's less fighting to prove you're right. All of us have been in teams and organizations where everybody's just fighting to prove they're right, and there's much more learning. There's no gossip. Gossip drops out. And instead of gossip, people talk directly to each other and they solve issues. People start to become very skilled at making and keeping good agreements. So much time gets wasted in organizations because people make sloppy agreements and then they don't keep them. Another huge one is all of a sudden there's a ton more appreciation and celebration. You know, John Gottman, the expert on relationships, says in healthy relationships, you know, there's at least a five to one ratio between appreciation and criticism. Well, if you go into most companies, it's exactly the opposite. There's more negative critical feedback five times as much as there is, hey, Dora, I really appreciate you for the quality of your questions in this interview. Thank you. When we work with teams, all of a sudden they're spending a ton more time appreciating than they are criticizing. And then the last one is there's a ton more candor. People are far more open and honest. So it's interesting. Appreciation goes up and candor goes up. So it doesn't become a touchy-feely, woo-woo kind of space. It becomes a place where crucial, critical, powerful conversations are being had, but in the context of a blame-free, drama-less environment so better decisions get made and speed to decision making is much higher. Those are some of the things that happen. By the way, it happens whether it's in a corporation or whether it's in a family. Families practice this stuff and their relationships get better the same way.
1: Yeah, and we've seen that in our family for sure and in our company. So yeah, the work again, Jim, that you've done and you've brought into the world is just so incredible. So what are you doing now? Are you doing a lot of this still? Our organization, Conscious
2: Leadership Group, you know, we basically work with teams and organizations, then we work with individual leaders in forums, which you know, you were in a forum, a group of eight to 10 leaders who gather on a monthly basis to practice, then we do individual coaching, and then we put on events. And interesting, one of the things that's happened is there's been a real demand for us to teach coaches how to use this material. So now we've got a coaches certification program and stuff like that. And then we write and produce. Our website is filled. You know, we open source all of our materials. So everything we got, it's out there. It's free. And it's amazing. It. It's
1: amazing information. Um,
2: we just want to be of service. You know, our highest view of ourselves is we're here to support the expansion of conscious leadership in the world. Just like you, the three of us are on the exact same page. We're all here to support people living the best version of themselves they can live, being the most healthy, vital, alive, awake people they can be. That's what we're doing.
0: People can go to your website,
2: it's conscious.is.
1: Well, Jim, thank you. This has just been a true pleasure.
2: You're so welcome. I love hanging out with you too.
1: <laughs> thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha
0: And I'm Doro.
1: Be well.